0: rather chilly Monday. It's very nice to have you all here. Um, since OTJR started in 2007, we've um, we've had the opportunity to host a number of key um, international criminal practitioners, including Mourinho Ocampo, the international prosecutor for the ICC, and Mr. Stephen Rath, the um, former prosecutor for the prosecutor Special Court of Sierra Leone. But one of the things um, that, that we 've done in term, when we 've been critically engaging with international criminal justice and also with um, transitional justice more broadly, we haven 't had the opportunity to look to the other side of the courtroom and to speak to the defense counsel rather than the prosecutors. And so tonight, thanks once again to the very very generous support of planethood and the Center for Socio Legal Studies, we have the opportunity to do, to do that. And I have the very great privilege of being able to introduce Peter Robinson. So um, Peter is currently assisting the, the, foreman, the former Bosnian-Serbian pre, uh, president, Radovan Karadic, who is defending himself before the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. With the trial starting this week, well, this next week, we're very grateful for Peter to make, to make the time to come and speak to us this evening. Um, In addition to this, Peter is also currently presenting the case of um, Josephine the former president of the Rwandan National Assembly, who's on trial for genocide before the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. In what Peter would say feels like a former life, prior to starting to engage with international criminal law, he was a federal prosecutor in the United States for 10 years, in which he practiced in domestic criminal, in which he um, in which in his practice of domestic criminal law, he participated in over 140 federal criminal jury trials. Finally, Peter's been a great mentor to a lot of young aspiring international criminal lawyers and has pioneered the inclusion um, of internships with the defense as well as the Office of the Prosecutor and um, all the registry of the chambers. And I think there are a number of people here in the room who've had the privilege of working with him. And so without further ado, fantastic to have you here, Peter.
1: Thanks for making the time out of your busy schedule. I look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank, Thank you. very much. Nicole Othama was uh, one of my absolute best interns in Arusha, the ICTR. And uh, actually, I have to say that I learned more from her than she learned from me, which is quite a thing for having an intern. Anyway, here I am in my robe. I thought I'd show you guys what it what it looks like to be a defense lawyer, because I'm here to inspire you about what the defense does and how important the work is of the defense in international criminal justice. You know, I always wear this robe whenever I can, because in the US, you don't get to wear a robe unless you're a judge. And in order to be a judge, you have to be politically influential or uh, somehow uh, close to somebody who can appoint you to that position, or you have to be a good politician to get elected. Non- none of those ab- above. so. The only way I can get to wear a robe is to be a criminal lawyer in the International (laughs) 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 tribunals. So I'm famous in the ICTY for wearing my robe like really early in the morning when there's no court until the afternoon. (laughs) I go out to the cafeteria in my robe, and there's sort of an ethics among people who who really regularly wear robes. You don't put your robe on until you're in the robing room right outside the courtroom, but I totally ignore that, and I'm wearing my robe every chance I get, so I'm going to wear it for you today. So... uh, (laughs) I was used to working with the FBI and the Drug Enforcement Administration and the US Customs. And I thought I was a really good lawyer because I won almost every case. But uh, having all those agencies behind me was really the secret to my success. (laughs) And uh, after about 10 years, I started with the smallest little cases and I got up to be doing more and more exciting and significant cases until finally I decided that I was ready for a new challenge and I would be a defense lawyer because that was really all I knew was criminal law. I was always reading criminal cases and criminal jurisprudence and the idea of going and working in another field uh, didn't seem very interesting to me so I decided to go to the dark side and become a defense lawyer (laughs) and it it immediately uh, became apparent to me what a big difference that was because I the first case I had I was asked to go and meet someone in Germany who had been arrested for money laundering so I flew to Germany and I this client and then I came back into the United States and when I got to customs normally I would show them my credentials as assistant United States attorney and they would carry my bags to my car and be really nice <laughs> to me so that I came into the United States and they asked me what I was and I said well I'm a lawyer what kind of law do you practice well criminal law Wh- what were you doing in Germany well I was there to see a client and what's the client charged with well money laundering so uh, I practically had a strip search that first time <laughs> And then I used to file motions as a prosecutor once in a while, I almost always win, and in the first case I had in the court there, I lost like 12 motions in one day, more than I'd lost in my entire career as a prosecutor. So, I got to see how difficult and challenging it was to be a defense counsel, and it really, it hit, it's magnified a hundred times in these international criminal tribunals, where not only are you facing a very well-armed prosecutor, but Prosecution is backed by all these NGOs who are interested in promoting the rights of victims and they're uh, assisting victims, and they have all this uh, tremendous energy and expertise that is all funneled to <coughs> the office of the prosecutor. So it is really a David and Goliath operation to try to defend someone at these international criminal tribunals. The reason I got involved in that was after being a defense lawyer for a while, I also uh, had a kid, and my, had a, my daughter. Uh, As she was getting older, she had lived in the same house in California and gone to the same school all her life, and I decided I wanted her to be a world citizen, so I wanted to see where we could go and live for a year, someplace abroad, and where I could do something related to criminal law, and I saw there were these tribunals, there's one in The Hague and one in Arusha. Arusha was a little bit uh, drastic to go from California for my family, so I applied to put my name on the list of both tribunals, actually, as a defense counsel, and I waited I set my CV and I waited for somebody to choose me or uh, assign me to represent someone. But it was a very long wait, and meanwhile my daughter's getting older and older, and she's almost a teenager and isn't gonna wanna hang around with her dad anymore. So I decided, well, I'm gonna go to The Hague for a year. No job or anything, but this is something I really wanted to do. So I moved with my family to The Hague. I put my daughter in the American school, and I started riding my bicycle to the tribunal every day. See how they do it so that I would be ready when they assign me a case and even uh, the registrar told me well if someone is arrested we can maybe assign you as the duty counsel and then it's up to them if they want to decide to hire you Um, but nobody was arrested during that time Uh, so for (laughs) month after month I was going to try you know seeing some of the absolute worst lawyering that I'd ever seen by defense counsel sometimes I had to actually believe it was so bad Uh, but in any event uh, I that this is going to turn out to be like a one-year sabbatical because I don't see any prospect for getting any work done. So i liking to be productive in my free time, I decided to write a novel. And so I spent my mornings writing a novel uh, about, uh, sort of dreaming about what it would be like to defend somebody with this of. <laughs> 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 I ended up, I did, I did finish the novel, which is much more difficult than being a lawyer. Uh, so I at least had something to show for this year. That was my goal. I thought, well, I better have something to show for this year. Otherwise, I'm going to go back to California with my tail between my legs and um, having failed in this assignment. So as it turned out, uh, one time, one day I did meet some lawyers uh, from Serbia who were defending this general, General Kerstich, who was on trial for crimes at Srebrenica. And I was watching the trial, and they needed something to write <laughs> their closing brief because it had to be done in English, and they weren't very good in English. And so they asked me if I'd be willing to do that, and that was my first case at the ICTY in the year 2000. And so I worked on this issue of whether what happened in Srebrenica in Bosnia was a genocide. And uh, we were trying to say that because uh, the, Mus- the Muslims who uh, were found in Srebrenica by the Serbs, they took all the women and children and they bused them to safety and they did massacre uh, most of the men that they could find. And we were saying that, that that didn't constitute a genocide because genocide requires the intent to destroy the ethnic group. If they really wanted to destroy the ethnic group, why would you let all the women and children go uh, and so we had, we thought that we had a very interesting issue and a, a good uh, chance on that but as it turned out uh, the tribunal rejected that and they said that there was a genocide and i got my first lesson about uh, politics and in international tribunals because i was used to myself in my own practice as a prosecutor and a defense attorney to just be focusing on the merits of the case on the legal issues what is correct what is most persuasive But in the tribunals, they're political institutions, and they have another layer of uh, decision-making that goes into them, which is somehow uh, influenced by politics. And the Appeals Chamber of the ICTY was really uh, wanting to put the label of genocide on Srebrenica, regardless of uh, some of the evidence that might have cast doubt as to whether or not there was really an intent to destroy the group at the time. And so uh, I'm learning as uh, I go along that uh, In order to really defend a client at these tribunals, you have to not only have the skills of advocacy, but you also have to have some political skills and some awareness of the political uh, impact of some of the decisions that you're trying to uh, influence. So anyway, I worked on General Kirstie's case for a while with the ICTY and, and finished that. And meanwhile, those lawyers thought I was doing a pretty good job. And there was another general who was in Belgrade who was wanted uh, for crimes in Kosovo? His name was General Ordnich. and he was uh, not—he th- was technically a fugitive, although the government of Serbia wasn't sending anybody to be, at that time to go to the ICTY. But he wanted to meet me to see whether or not I would be—he would be interested in having me be part of his team when, when, and if we surrendered to the tribunal. And so I went to Belgrade to meet General Ordnich. and th- my first experience with, with dealing with a fugitive. And uh, they told me that uh, since I was American, and the Americans had freshly bombed uh, Belgrade in uh, 1999 over Kosovo, that it would be maybe difficult uh, for the general to trust me, but anyway, be, he wanted to meet me and see whether or not he wanted me to help defend him. So they told me that uh, they were going to take me to the general's house and that I should, they were going to put a blindfold over me and drive around in circles, and so I wouldn't know where his house was. And so. I thought, okay, if this is what it takes to defend somebody at a tribunal. Why not? I'll be blindfolded. So I got in the car, and I decided that I asked the driver, well, yeah, I'm sitting in the back. Maybe I can just lie down on the seat, and then you don't have to blindfold me. And he looked at me like, what are you talking about? And it turned out my friend was playing a joke on me. <laughs> 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 he didn't really need to blindfold me. Anyway, I got to i like to drink the Slavovitz brandy in, in Serbia. And so he was really happy to offer me all the Slavovitz brandy, but I don't drink. You know, I haven't drank for about 30 years. And I wasn't about to start drinking. But you know, he's looking at me like, I told him, well, no, I don't drink alcohol, you know. And he's looking at me like, well, you're some kind of a Muslim or something. <laughs> and, uh, no, you know, I just, choose not to drink. And uh, he's it was really kind of, a, it was a very awkward time uh, you know, to try to make some camaraderie with this general but I told him, well, you know, look, at, uh, why are you drinking with your lawyers and all these other people? I'm getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning. I'm at my desk. I, my head is clear. I'm working hard. And, you know, I think if I was somebody who was in trouble, that's the kind of lawyer I would want to have rather than somebody who's out drinking with them. But, you know, it's up to you. Anyway, he wanted me to be his lawyer, and I uh, started to work on this case. And eventually, in 2002, he turned himself in, and uh, he came to the tribunal to be defended. It turned out that uh, that same month while I was sitting in the ICTY, in the defense room, a fax comes in and I find out that somebody in Arusha, the ICTR, has seen my CV and wants, wants me to be his lawyer. Now, I didn't know too much about the Rwandan genocide at that time. In 1994, we were... Following other things, uh, there was a skater by the name of Tonya Harding, another uh, skater by the name of Nancy Kerrigan, and following that case very closely, <laughs> and paying too much attention to what was going on in Rwanda. But I knew it was a horrible crime that 800,000 people or so had been killed in 100 days, and I thought it would be a good idea to meet this person that uh, wanted me to represent them before I decided to devote the next few years of my life to that. So I asked the U.N. tribunal if I could go and meet him before I decided. And in typical U.N. fashion, they said no. Uh, So you either tell us yes or no. So anyway, I decided that uh, maybe it would be a good idea because since I already was working in a case at ICTY, I could focus on this jurisprudence of the tribunal. They said the trial was going to start relatively soon, and I thought I could work on that in the meantime while we were waiting for General Morinich's case to start. So I said yes, I went to Awusha, And believe it or not, I'm still working on that case. We're still in trial, and that's eight years later. Uh, So anyway, uh, the case in Rwanda, the ICTR, my client's name is Joseph Nzererera. He was the secretary general of the ruling party, the MRND, and also became president of the Rwanda National Assembly. And he's charged with genocide, incitement to genocide, conspiracy for genocide. And it's one of the most fascinating cases that I've ever been involved in in my life. When I got to Lucian uh, in uh, the ICTR, the prosecutor handed me about twenty pieces of paper and said, "This is your disclosure," and it was basically witness statements of about ten witnesses. And I said, "This is, you know, this is the disclosure. Where's all the documents? Where's all the letters, the speeches?" And he said, "No, in Rwanda they didn't write anything down, so you don't get any of that. There's just nothing. We have these witnesses, and they're going to testify, and that's what you get." Well, I found out that, that that wasn't true. That in fact, in Rwanda they were Sort of meticulous about making uh, writing, writing letters about the broad taping their broadcasts on the radio, but I ended up having to put together myself a database of all these contemporaneous documents which we could have collected over the years to try to show exactly from some reliable source, a contemporaneous source, what happened. And so now I have over 20,000 documents in this database, uh, and I have a much better. Uh, documentation based than the prosecutor does in Arusha just because we went out and systematically tried to collect everything because in order to defend somebody when you have two ethnic groups with very strong feelings against each other and a lot of people with different interests and in telling the story the way they want to tell it somehow these documents that were generated at the time have a lot more value and so we put a high premium on trying to collect those and we use them all the time in the trial I also uh, asked when I got to Arusha, well, how do you, how do you s- where's the jurisprudence? And they said, well, occasionally we'll post some decision on the website, but you have to look, and you don't have access <coughs> to our internal system, only the prosecution and the chambers do, so you know, basically you're on your own to try to learn, uh, find up the jurisprudence of what other decisions have been made in, case, in other cases at the ICTR. So I ended up uh, having to create also my own database of the jurisprudence. I made them give me every single interlocutory decision. And uh, I went back and read them all, cataloged them, put them into a digest. Some of my interns who are here worked on that digest with me. And uh, now I have actually the best database of the jurisprudence of the ICTR also. Uh, And basically we had to create these things from scratch because essentially the the ICTR was not set up really to uh, have any kind of sophisticated defense. It was basically witnesses coming in from Rwanda saying, I saw this guy at a roadblock with a machete, and the defense witnesses would come in and say, no, the guy was at home with me, and and that was how the cases were being prosecuted. So uh, it was a lot of work, really, to be prepared for the trial in the ICTR in Arusha, and uh, it's been a huge battle uh, ever since uh, just to try to have some level of of the truth come out during that trial. Things at the ICTY are much more professional. I'm not exactly sure why that is, but the ICTY, the prosecution, has a very, very large uh, database. They have a very good staff. They're producing a lot of material and disclosure. In fact, in the Carriage case, we're buried under 1.4 million pages of disclosure right now. Uh, So we almost have too much disclosure, which we don't complain about because it's nice to know all the, as much as you can about a case but it's uh, very very uh, different from the ICTY and the ICTR in terms of uh, what the prosecutor is able to do and what the trial chambers make these individuals do well anyway in Arusha also uh, as a defense lawyer uh, we face problems because there's a culture in Rwanda that uh, witnesses essentially uh, don't mind to accuse the defense lawyer of impropriety if they if they're cornered and they feel like they're uh, trapped and um, have no other explanation. And so I think it's been four times now that witnesses have accused me of bribing them on the stands. Uh, Even most recently, uh, a couple of weeks ago in our defense case, we called a witness who had testified four times for the prosecution in other cases. And he was ready to recant and to admit that he had lied in those cases and that, in fact, he had not seen any of those authorities that he claimed to have seen. And had been made up uh, these stories at the, at the instigation of the prison officials in Rwanda who had promised him and other inmates who had also testified that if they testified against these authorities, they would be able to be released earlier. And so uh, I had him all ready to testify. And then when he came back from Rwanda to Arusha, uh, he had she told me the night before that he had been met by someone from the prosecution's office in Rwanda someone from military intelligence, and they had told him that if he testified, he would never ever, uh, for the defense, he would never see he'd be a free man again. Uh, and so, all I could tell him as the defense lawyer was, well, you know, you'll, you'll feel better if you've told the truth. You, you, know, <laughs> you know, God will, uh, you know, reward you in the afterlife. But, you know, I didn't have much leverage and that they were holding his freedom over his head. Um, anyway, I tell the truth and then he came to court and he told the judge no I want to be a prosecution witness I'm going to uh, tell you know I'm going to uh, say that uh, everything I said before was the truth These people authorities were doing all the killing and so I, I had to basically impeach my own witness and so I was asking him well didn't you tell me that and I went all the things that he had told me that I lied that it was there one government who suggested I lied and so he kept saying, no, I didn't tell you that, I didn't tell you that, I didn't tell you that. And I said, well, I'm sorry I have bad news for you, but I recorded our conversation without your knowledge to protect myself from this kind of thing. So we're going to play that tape now, and we'll all see that this is exactly what you did tell me. And then he said, well, OK, I did tell you that, but you paid me $500, and you gave me a script. And uh, that was you bribed me, and you told me to say these things. You know. So anyway, we, we played the tape. and." obviously was lying but uh, you know there this is an occupational hazard essentially to be accused of bribery and I have other witnesses that, so under similar circumstances have done the same thing so anyway these are some of the difficulties that we encounter as defense counsel in some of these cases now I want to tell you a little bit about the Radaman Karjic case and I'm going to uh, open up so you can ask me questions uh, if you would like but um, in the Radhavan Karadzic case, was, uh, for me, is really interesting because I started off, as I told you, working on this Kirstich case. And we worked on Srebrenica events. And I was thinking, you know, Radoman Karadzic has a pretty good defense to the Srebrenica things. He, he wasn't there. He was giving orders to obey humanitarian law. It looked like it was somehow some some uh, ad hoc decision on the spot to start massacring these people, not anything that had been planned in advance. And I said, if, if I was telling all my friends, if Karadzic ever gets arrested, I want to be his lawyer. This is like back about uh, in the year 2000. And it even became a joke because a couple of other accused wanted to me to represent them, and I refused. I said, no, I don't want to have any conflict of interest, because when Karadzic gets arrested, I'm going to be his lawyer. So people were in were joking about this. And then uh, one day in uh, July of 2008, I heard that he was arrested. And I called my friends in Serbia and said, OK, I'm ready. Tell him. You know? <laughs> he didn't know me from a hole in the wall. you know." <laughs> So it, it turned out that uh, he had uh, some people advising him in Serbia who uh, were telling him basically to represent himself, which is something he wanted to do. But he wanted to have somebody who knew the common law system and who was experienced in the tribunal to be on his team. And so when he started ask, his advisors started asking around in Serbia, everybody was mentioning my name because it had been like a joke that I wanted to represent So somebody gave him my name, and he asked uh, that I come and see him. In the prison in the hague when he got there and i went there and uh, i met him and uh, we started talking about what he wanted to do for his defense and basically he said he knew the facts better than anybody else and he wanted to have the floor a platform during the trial so he didn't want to be represented by a lawyer and only be heard in two weeks when he gave his testimony maybe two years from the beginning of the trial he wanted to be heard every day to put across his point of view about what happened and, uh, but he wanted the help of somebody who knew the law, who could make sure that he had his rights to a fair trial could be observed because he himself didn't really know what his rights were in the tribunal and how to best to assert his rights. And so with that understanding, I basically became his legal advisor and I have, uh, in the course of, of the last year and a half or so, been working with him very closely as he's preparing for his trial. The idea of self-representation doesn't go over very well at the ICTY uh, after the experience they had with the Milosevic case, and also with uh, Mr. Sheschel. Uh, they really are almost uh, allergic to self-representation, and they think it's a disease that they don't want to catch. And so they've done everything they could to discourage uh, carriages from representing himself. They offered if he had took a lawyer, he could have uh, full defense funding for the trial, which would basically include uh, seven people and uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, $40,000 a month worth of uh, assets that uh, the tribunal would be paying towards his defense. But if he decided to represent himself, he was going to be entitled to one person assisting him during the trial who would be paid 25 euros an hour for 150 hours a month. And uh, that was a stark choice that uh, he was given. And so we decided to try to put together a team of pro bono people as much as we could to try to enable him to defend himself as best he could without these resources that uh, would otherwise be available to him if he had a lawyer. Mm -hmm. So we contacted uh, some people. It had always been my idea, actually, as I've been uh, practicing lawyer, to try to merge academia and the the practice of law in some of these cases, and to have people who were interested in international criminal law, who were writing these law review articles and attending these symposiums to take those ideas and put them into practice and try to turn them into motions and pleadings and things like that. So we recruited a a group of people from academia to work as uh, sort of pro bono legal advisors, and then we recruited interns from all over the world, and we ended up uh, having 100 applications for interns and lots of people coming to The Hague uh, all during the year working on carriage case. And we basically tried to take every possible legal challenge that we could think of and see if we could bring it before the tribunal. And that's pretty much what we did all during the last year. We fi- filed more motions and, and requests and challenges than it has been done in any case uh, that they've had so far. And we tried to make them credible. Uh, if there's no uh, merit to a motion, we didn't file it. If there was some merit, we filed it, whether or not uh, it was going to succeed or not. And so we tried to make the the jurisprudence of the tribunal as good as possible with the strongest advocacy for the defense that we could muster. Now uh, we've kind of gone uh, worked on all of those legal issues, and now the case is ready for trial. And so we've been doing a lot of factual trial preparation in the last few months, particularly uh, Karadzic himself and people who are helping him in Belgrade are assembling the facts uh, or their evidence to contradict the prosecution's facts. And he's going to be making his opening statement on Monday. Uh, And we've had some victories because even last Friday, uh, the president of the tribunal overturned the decision of the registrar that Karadzic would have to defend himself alone with just one person. And they've ordered that five people now can be uh, paid to assist him during the trial, including an investigator and a case manager. And so uh, Karadzic originally was going to boycott the trial, saying, how can I face, how can I have a fair trial with me and one other person against some 20 people who are working for the prosecution but now that the president has decided that he ha- can have the same essentially support that someone would have if they were represented by a lawyer he's ready to go ahead and he's going to defend himself as best he can in the trial people ask me what it's like to work with Radovan karadzic and, and uh, how it's what it's like to represent to be one of his lawyers and uh, it's really interesting i've learned this also from my case in Uh, in the the Rwandan Tribunal. For someone to become a leader of a country, or a leader of people, no matter how small the country, or how different that uh, culture is from ours, they have to have a lot of really personal qualities of charisma and personality, and Radovan Karjic has that in spades. Uh, He's very, very personable. He has an incredible breadth of knowledge. He's, first of all, has been a poet in his life, so he has all this literary, Information. He's been a psychiatrist and he has a lot of medical knowledge. Uh, he's also very religious in Serbian Orthodox religion. He has all these stories about the saints and just the this, uh, long history of uh, the Serbs and their religion. And so he has this tremendous breadth of knowledge. When you're sitting down talking to him, he can bring out a uh, drop from an incredibly wide uh, variety of sources and information. He's also very funny. Uh, he's very uh, very very bright uh, and works very hard and so he has all the kind of qualities that would, you would have in a leader of any other country uh, and it's really uh, very enjoyable to, to work with a person like that and, and I think sometimes uh, the more serious the crime that someone is uh, charged with sometimes the easier it is to defend them on a personal level because they tend to be these people who are accomplished and uh, skilled in communications and personal relations. And so just on a a human level, sitting down in a small room with that person day after day, it's actually quite easy to do that. Um, Now, the last thing I wanted to tell you about uh, what it's like to defend somebody in in these tribunals is uh, that the role, at least as I see it, of a defense lawyer in these tribunals is really one that promotes the fight against impunity. You know, I, I have even on my wrist here uh, a couple of these bracelets. One of them is against uh, blood diamonds, and the other says genocide never again. And I feel that every day that I'm defending someone at these tribunals, I'm helping to promote the fight against impunity, because if these tribunals aren't uh, systems that are fair and that have a strong defense and, that are, and the judgments aren't legitimate in the end, which is, means the product of a really... Uh, good advocacy on both sides, then the fight against impunity will just be seen as some kind of slogan and some kind of victor's justice. And so with the role of the defense counsel in these tribunals is incredibly important to make sure that the fair trial rights of the accused are respected and that the judgments that are rendered are legitimate and accurate. And so I see my role as also being a fighter for human rights as I stand there defending Radovan Karadzic or Joseph and in Arusha. And I also sometimes see, feel like I'm uh, one person standing there in front of a train just holding out my hand trying to stop this train as the huge amounts of evidence uh, that the prosecutions have amassed and the, the feeling of uh, how horrible these crimes are are all bearing down on this one individual. And I'm really the only person standing between that system and this individual. And it's an incredible responsibility. It's, it's an awesome... The uh, relationship you have with that individual, when you have to fight so hard to protect their rights, and uh, it's for me uh, probably the most worthwhile thing that I've ever done in my life is to try to help one individual simply to have a fair trial at one of these tribunals. Anyway, I've been talking for a long time, so I'm ready to answer any of your questions. If, uh, any of you would like to ask? Yes. Thank you. For your, uh, Yeah, you know, I think it it certainly makes my job a lot easier if I like my clients, so I I think I'm predisposed to like them if I can. But on the other hand, uh, I've also represented people who are really uh, nasty individuals and uh, who have uh, uh, committed crimes. uh, Maybe more uh, they were the ones that held the knife or the gun or... You know, committed the violent act and uh, so I've had the experience of both ways of representing people I like very much and representing people I really don't like but nevertheless I'm going to do the absolute best job I can for them uh, but it, it, uh, you're probably right I mean I'm definitely predisposed to want to like my clients and I realize that uh, it makes it a lot easier for me if I can uh, have a good relationship with them rather than one where I'm feeling disgusted <coughs> to sit down with them yes just a, just a comment Peter on, on what you're talking about uh, my dad, Ben Ferencz, was a prosecutor at the Einsatzgruppen case <coughs> in, at Nuremberg, and one of the things that he talks about frequently when he lectures is the fact that the defendants in that case were very well-educated people, very sophisticated, very, very cultured people, and uh, he points out, in fact, that, as you have said, very often people who are involved in some of the most atrocious crimes are the very technical. We do have that charm, <coughs> that charisma, who have been very successful in life, family men, some of them with double doctorates. since We're here in Oxford, and uh, so it is, it's it's a, a, a sad irony. We see this. Yeah. Well, in these international tribunals, when they're focusing on people at the highest levels, I think it's going to be common that those are the kinds of clients, are the kinds of people who are prosecuted there. So uh, even in when you in the future with the ICC, when they start to bring more high-level people uh, in. In the dock, I think that that'll be uh, again more even more prevalent that the people who are on trial in these tribunals are people with those kind of skills. Yes. Given what you said about the imbalance between mm-hmm. prosecution and death, you. if you were to become a prosecutor, what changes would you want to make? Yeah, I could easily become a prosecutor. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, the only thing I don't like about being a prosecutor is they have a huge bureaucracy in which you have to get approvals for everything you do, and as a defense lawyer, I'm used to calling the shots myself, and so it would be a little difficult for me to be working in that kind of bureaucracy, but I, I would like to be a prosecutor in, in uh, these cases. I also <coughs> think that's a huge, uh, contribution to society and a huge, uh, hugely rewarding job especially because nobody asks you how do you how can you possibly defend this man you're always wearing the white hat when you're a prosecutor <laughs> but um, as far as the things that I would do a little bit differently and not so much uh, differently but one thing the most important thing <coughs> the prosecutor can do to make the proceedings fair is give complete disclosure to the defense heritage uh, R- is often saying that you know he says in my system we have this investigative judge who listens to both sides and during the investigation who takes information from the defense and from the prosecution and comes up with a dossier that is objective and includes all this, whereas the office of the prosecutor, when they're investigating, are basically just looking for inculpatory information and exculpatory things just get put to the side. And so by the time the case reaches the indictment stage, they don't have uh, the same, it doesn't come in the same way, and the defense has to now work so much harder to dig up that exculpatory information. And I've noticed in my case in the ICTR, the investigators there, if somebody tells them something favorable, they don't write it down, uh, which is very unprofessional, and they don't do that at the ICTY. But ICTR, they do, so I've even been filing motions saying they have a duty to record exculpatory evidence when they receive it. But so far, I've been unsuccessful in convincing the judges of that. So for a prosecutor to really um, want to have a fair trial, uh, giving disclosure is probably (coughs) the best. A contribution they can make, and also uh, to giving the defense enough time. We have a completion strategy of these ad hoc tribunals now, and so there's a tremendous pressure to get these trials started and get them over with. And uh, that also is difficult when the defense has to do a lot of investigation and has to review a lot of documents. Yes? I think it's not ideal
0: that the